From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the Saddle. I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word to describe it. <laughs> From the Saddle. I'm Caitlin Hewitt and this is From the Saddle. Determined, capable and independent. Girly Goody pursued a career as a single female in an era that was dominated by men. At 83 years of age, Girly talks about the journey, history and hurdles of what it's taken to develop thick skin and accomplish a life of no regrets. She's a true trailblazer in the Australian beef industry. From the saddle. Good morning, Girly. Thank you so very much for joining us here at From the Saddle. Hello, Capen. How are you? <laughs> I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good. This morning, thank you. That's good. So, Girly, your name is not foreign to the Monto district, but let's share your story to our listeners. Girly, will you be willing to share with us how old you are today? Yes, I'm 82 years old. I'll be 83 in February. Wow. So, Girlie, you are currently on the land and managing a cattle property or station, whatever people refer to it as. Can you tell us how this journey came about, how you become to love the land, I guess? Have you always been a part of the land? Most definitely. I was born here. My parents came here with the two eldest boys in 1931. They moved into the house, built the house and moved in. So uh, we've been here all our life. So 1931, they built on the property to then move into the house. Is that right? The house wasn't there? No, the house wasn't there. It was when the closer settlement came around. And um, this was one of the blocks that came up. And um, my dad got this block. They built the house. And mum's brother built the house, actually. We gave it a 90th birthday party last year. And um, the two eldest boys, Billy was would have been about two and Tom would have been about six months old when they moved here. Goodness. Then they had uh, Roy and Frank and myself and the younger brother, Ken, after the ma- they moved here. So you could say I've, I've lived here all my life. So the house obviously doesn't look like what it used to now. When mum and dad first moved into it, two little boys, how big was it? What, like, what did it look like? Well, there was a big room in the middle and a little kitchen on one side, a veranda on two sides, and um, a bedroom on each corner, and a, another bedroom in the middle. It wasn't very big, and it wasn't sealed, and I think they were sitting on, I wasn't here then, but I think they might have been sitting on um, kerosene boxes and all that sort of stuff, because it wasn't very huge. But my mother was a pretty good cook, and she made things do. As they did back then. As they did back mm. then, yes. Yeah. So how big was the place when mum and dad moved there? It's 8,000 acres and they had to build the property, the house down in one corner because that's the only bit of really flat country. <laughs> the rest of it is very hilly. So, girly, you are one of five and you're the only girl. One of six. One of six. Yeah. So what was it like growing up with five other siblings? Well. I must admit I didn't play with dolls very often, um, <laughs> but I, I was um, always around a horse or on a horse's back or playing with the goats or or whatever. 
And um, yes, I spent a lot of time outside. We did um, primary correspondence until I went to boarding school. We had a little schoolhouse here and, and three neighbours' kids came. We, we housed the governess and at one stage there were 10 kids here. The year that I went to boarding school, it got down to two, so that was the last we did the correspondence. So how did Mum go getting you all to do schooling? Well, we had a governess, you see. Did you kick your heels in? Were you happy to do it or were you wanting to go with Mum and Dad? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we couldn't get out of school because the schoolhouse was here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Three kids had to ride about four miles on their horses and the others walked up, usually they were about a mile down, but if the creek was up, they couldn't get, so they were lucky. If the creek was up, we still had to go to school. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't escape it. <laughs> so boarding school was a bit of a wake-up call. I bet. Simply because we'd never been in a classroom as such. But the five brothers all went to the boys' grammar in Rocky, and I don't think we missed many years from about 1945 to about 1969 at the boys' grammar. And I went to the girls' grammar for three years. Did you enjoy it? I did. I always said I'd only do one year and then they took me into two and I said, well, I'll do two. And then they said, well, it's no good doing sub-junior without doing junior. So I went back and did the junior then. <laughs> so how old were you when you finished school? Uh, 17. I turned 17 just after I finished school. And then I got a job at the local council office for three years. I worked in the council office. My father was a councillor for about 28 years. And um, I got a job at the council office for three years. So that was a pretty good grounding. Yeah. Did you not want to go home or did you think, well, while I'm out, I might as well explore? (laughs) Well, uh, I was home every weekend mustering. (laughs) (laughs) But you go to a dance Oh, probably for Saturday night for sure and maybe Friday night and then come home and muster Saturday and Sunday and go back to work Monday. So I sort of kept, you know, kept a hand on what was going on at home. And after that, I sort of um, travelled around a bit and I worked at different places for a few months here and there and that gave me, you know, a bit of a travelling around. I did a couple of seasons down at Kyabram in the fruit cannery. Okay. That was a real education. <laughs> In what way? Well, I had to get there for a start. I had no idea what it all entailed. And I um, I got there and you worked pretty hard. Well, they were long hours and it was factory work and it was very boring. But the money was good. I mean, for one week we did seven days and four nights and I got 36 quid for the week. That was quids. <laughs> and that was really, really, really good money. But um, our times have changed. So you were around 21 years of age at this point? Well, about 23 by the time I went down there, I think. And then I came home and my cousin married a poultry farmer down near um, Kabulcha, Beer War. And she was had little kids and I used to always stop off there every now and again and do a few months packing eggs and delivering chickens in Brisbane and all that sort of thing, you know, just to help them out. And um, she had four sons, so I I helped her out a fair bit. And um, I made a lot of friends down there and, oh, we we had a ball. Yeah. But I always came home. 
homeless and always the, the puller. Yeah. So what was uh, happening at home at this point while you were, you know, down at the chook farm or, or picking fruit? Well, the older brothers were here and they were sort of working, working the property with my father and that sort of thing. And um, it wasn't until, you know, my father got older and mum was getting older he he passed away in 1976, my dad, and um, that threw everything into turmoil. But he was in partnership with one brother, and when he passed away, we hadn't discussed anything as you didn't in those days. Mm. And um, it turned out that he had left me his half because more or less while my brother and his wife were living here as well in the other house, Somebody had to look after mum. So we we organised that I, if I could get the money, I would buy my brother's share out because, if, you know, the other boys said, well, the older boys said, well, you can do it because they already had properties. So they didn't want to come home sort of thing. Right. So then my brother and his wife decided that it would be better if they sold out because at that time we were in the beef recession from 1974 to 1976, of course, was a beef recession. And um, there wasn't too much money around. And, um, yeah, things looked pretty bleak. So I approached the bank and the local guys at the Ag Bank said that I wouldn't have a problem, but they waited till the end of six weeks before the bloke in Brisbane turned it down. So we had to sort of start again. I think we started about March negotiating and I didn't get the deeds until November. That's how long it took to get it all sorted. So, Girlie, when you approach the bank back then in 1976, what was required for you to apply for a loan then? I needed to raise, which doesn't sound very much now, I needed to raise $80,000. Oh, back then that's a, that's a lot. Even now that's a lot. Well, these days it would probably be a couple of million. <laughs> yeah, well, true. Well, for the same thing. Mm. And he hummed and hard a fair bit, this big boss, but he never gave us any answers until they turned it down. So then my second eldest and third eldest brother, they were in partnership and they, they were also clients of the Ag Bank and they were in a pretty good position. So they stood guarantor for me. And that way we did get the loan to go through. And then, of course, I had to get the local solicitors then had to get the deeds and everything through the lands department in Brisbane. And they had said to me, don't try to get political help because at the time Neville Hewitt was our the Minister for Lands, if you remember. I don't remember, but I have been told, yes. But you would know, yes. yes. And I mean, Neville was a good friend. We knew Neville. Yeah. So I hadn't approached him, but this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I was getting more frustrated by the minute. And I came home one day and I said, well, you know, damn this. I'm going to ring Neville's office and see if he can hurry this thing up. So while I was in town, the solicitor rang the land's office and this guy, I'll never forget his name, Wiserick. <laughs> <laughs> I forget a lot of things, but I haven't forgotten his name. And he said, oh, he said, it's just come on my desk now. And Derek said to me afterwards, he said, you know, he said, we know that our town office took that round a fortnight ago. And Derek said, well, how long is it going to be? Oh, he said, about another 10 days. And Derek said, oh, yeah, right. 
So I came home and I rang the lands office and Neville was overseas at the time, but I got his secretary and I told her what I wanted. Well, bless me, three days. Mm. It was back. And, and I thought, well, you know, why didn't I do that sooner? <laughs> you were told not to. Well, more or less, mm. yeah, because they said the banks don't like you getting political help. Yeah. But anyway, eventually it did go through. And incidentally, I paid that off in 10 years. I had a 25-year loan, but I paid it off in 10 years. You were initially declined the loan, is that correct? Oh, yes. I was declined a loan in my own name, yes. Can you remember the reason? Did they give you a reason? Well, no, they didn't give us a reason, but we knew that it would have been because I was a single woman, because it had happened to others. So the only way around it was for your brothers to go guarantor with you? That's right. They had to go guarantor. So, girly, the property now, 8,000 acres, how many generations has it seen? Well, only my father and myself so far. Our nephew and his wife have been living here for the last mm, 12 years. They moved here in 2010. And, um, well, they will take over in time. I just haven't got around to doing anything like that yet. <laughs> I keep saying, yeah, I've got to do it. But, um, you know, they do say that if you're doing what you love, you'd never work a day in your life. That is true. Mm. And I'm passionate about my cattle, of course, and the place. And the, and the nephew that's here was actually born here because he's the son of the one that was in partnership with my father. So he was actually born here when they were still living here. So he's back. So it's done a bit of a turnaround, so he'll be the third generation. Okay. So uh, hopefully it stays in the family. Well, let's hope so. Yeah. Your father passed away in 1976. Mm-hmm. And you said that. Nothing was put in place. There was no real plan put in place because it was obviously a sudden passing, was it? Oh, no, no. No, it no. wasn't. Uh, really, he had cancer. Okay. And it was in one of those things that he didn't want us to know and we didn't want him to know that we knew that he was, you know, terminally ill. And, um, yeah, it was never discussed, which it should have been. And we had a lawyer in here who was a non-believer in women only. He, he was a bit chauvinistic. He was a lot chauvinistic. He didn't believe in women owning country either. So he hadn't made things really clear. So it took a lot of sorting out. And I do say that if I had to relive those two years between 1976 when Daddy died until 1978 when I got the deeds, I think I'd jump off a cliff first because it was very stressful. Absolutely. Mm. And my mum was here for another 30 years. She was nearly 97 when she passed away. Wow. Oh, the last 18 months she was in care, but she was here up until then. So, um, yeah, she did all the cooking and what have you, and, and I did the outside for a long time. So she got past the cooking, so I had to, <laughs> I had to learn to do both then. So, Gilly, running a property isn't easy and you were a female, well, you are a female, but doing it as a female back then when there was so much stigma around, were you determined to prove that you could even just that little bit more, knowing that you could? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, after about five years, I suppose it was, my back caved in a bit. I laid up a little while with a bad back 
but um, I found that you could get a back brace, which I've been wearing ever since, and that gets me around to do what I want to do. And, um, yes, I, I did work hard to prove that I could, but I think there was only about once that I ever thought, oh, why did I ever do this? Because for the first 10 years, we had drought after drought after drought, and we ran out of water, and oh, we ran out of grass, and it was dry, and it was pretty horrendous, really. But you just kept going, you know, because you had to. You do, and you, you do have to, but did you have a support network? Who did you... Well, the two brothers who stood guarantor for me, they were always on hand to give me a hand. Yeah. And um, my older brother, he was living away from here down near Toowoomba, and... Four years after my father died, he had an accident and was killed too. And he was very supportive. So that was a big loss on top of all the other losses. Yeah. But the two two brothers that were close handy here, they had property all around. They were always on hand to give me a, a hand with the heavy stuff. And one of my brothers was a timber cutter, so he'd cut the timber on the place because you could sell the timber. There was a fair bit of timber. And that helped to pay off some of the bills. And at that time... I also had an extra account at the agricultural bank that if I got over the repayments, I could bank it, but it was accessible. And they were paying me the same interest, would you believe, as I was paying them? <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't happen now. Oh, <laughs> no. And, I mean, I got it all paid off before interest went up. I think it was 13% I was paying. And after that, Interest rates went up to, well, they actually went up to about 21, 23. But by that time, I had it paid off. So um, that was a big help too. And I said, I'm not going to borrow money again. If I want something badly enough, I'll wait till I can pay for it. Do you think that comes from the trauma of trying to get the finance to buy the property in the first place? Well, no, I've never liked owing money as such, and I've always had a beef about GST. When GST came in, it meant that Meatworks had to pay us GST for what went over the hooks, and I said, well, that's fresh food and that should be GST free because now every time I send cattle to the Meatworks, I get the GST in my bank account, which isn't mine, so I owe money again. So that gives me a pain in the neck, (laughs) (laughs) if you like. (laughs) But, but anyway, I mean, selling them through the sale yards is a different thing because you're selling the whole beast. Yeah. But selling them through the meat works, it's just the meat. And when GSD was coming in, I thought, oh, my God, maybe I might die before then or maybe it won't come in. But anyhow, neither happened. No, it's in. in. So, girly, managing droughts, uh, like you said, the first 10 years were really rough. The property that you're on, what's the water situation like? Are you on a river? Did you have to cart water? How did you manage all that? Well, we've got two permanent with apostrophes around at Creek, which about August last year were both completely dry. And we had wells that were going dry. We've got wells and dams, and I've got a couple of bores now. But water was a very severe problem this time, before October last year. We were looking down the barrel at another dry year and I didn't know where we are going to go because we destocked down as far as we could go. Surprisingly, back in 19, the middle 1940s, 
the land ranger at the time that used to come in and do evaluations told my father that we were overcapitalised on water, would you oh. believe? And at that stage, there was probably about three wells, I suppose, and no dams as such. We were dependent on creeks, and I'd like him to come back and have a look now. Absolutely. I'd like him to have come back last year and had a look because we have dug, we put down so many bores back in the 90s. 90s were very dry. So the creek ran three times in the 90s, 92, 94, and 96. And it was so dry that, um, well, I was carting water. And carting water is pretty hopeless because you can feed them, but you can't really cart water, not economically. So, you know, the paddocks were shut up. At the moment, we actually have a couple of empty paddocks too because simply because we haven't bred up enough from last year. But hopefully everything's looking pretty good at the moment. So, How do you find the land changes from drought to, you know, wet times? Do you find the grass growth, the dieback? How have you seen the land change over the time that you've been there? Well, we don't get dieback, but we have got a lot of creeping lantana. And the ordinary lantana you can cope with, but the creeping lantana is, it has cut the stocking rate on this place dramatically, particularly through the 90s because it likes being up in the stony, rocky hills. And in the 90s, of course, when it was so dry, it sort of crept down onto the flats. And um, we don't have a lot of flats, mind you. But we've done a lot of timber treatment over the years and we've got a few suckers now that need a little bit of treatment. But um, it gets us there and... I'll never be a millionaire, but so long as you've got enough money to pay the bills and do what you want to do, I think you're doing all right. Yeah. But, um, I know, it's been a hell of a ride. (laughs) (laughs) My father was a, he was an avid show junkie. He showed a lot of cattle over the years. He won a lot of carcass comps up in Rookie in the 50s and Gladstone, and he judged a lot of stud cattle from here to Sydney and back again. And um, I guess that's probably where I got the showing bug from. I was about to ask you where all that came into play. So it was through Dad. Oh, yes, definitely. When they killed the cattle in Rockhampton for the show up there, they took them because it was Lakes Creek and they took the carcasses over to London and rejudged them over there. It would have been the freezer days. And, um, yeah, he won over there as well. We've got photos of them in the big networks over there. But there were likes of um, Dick Wilson and Billy Geddes and Daddy were the main ones that sort of went into those competitions up there. The Rockhampton one was a K-Wagon of Bullocks, would you believe? I mean, I couldn't get a K-Wagon of Bullocks to save myself because I don't have enough. (laughs) But one of the classes was a K-Wagon, which is 18 Bullocks. So, you know, that that's pretty amazing anyway. But Bill Geddes, old Bill, at Cootie Ute, he was one of the main contenders up there. And um, I think the main's out at Springshore, and this was in, in the middle 50s, because Rocky Show was the thing in those days. Of course, now it's beef, I suppose, but I've never taken to beef like I did to Rocky Show. Why's that? Oh, Rocky Show. Well, I was young at Rocky Show. We had a ball. <laughs> <laughs> There's more play than work. Well, oh, well, there wasn't any work up there. We, it was just social <laughs> <laughs> because we only had fat cattle. I've never had stud. Young people today have got it made because they've got these stud cattle laid on. They've got 
all the education departments have um, agricultural and, and they've got an opportunity to go to these shows and lead the cattle and judge the cattle. Well, we didn't get that. You know, and young people have really got it made as that because, well, we didn't have pony club either. I mean, we had to learn to ride. You, you just got on and you hung on. You got on, you hung on. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and if you fell off, you got up and got back on again. Yep, that's right. <laughs> So, you know, it was, um, yeah, it was just the way you did things. So there wasn't too much finesse, but I did do, Daddy was the president of the race club. He was an amateur jockey for 50 years, and he was president of the race club in here for about 30 years. And one race, he said, oh, Billy Miles can't come to the races today. He was the clerk of the course. He's got to pump water. He said, you better do it. And I said, Huh? <laughs> Uh, what am I going to ride? Ah, uh, Gordon Russell, who is his brother-in-law, he's got a pony in there, you can use him. I said, oh, good one, eh? <laughs> so I started being clerk of the course at the races, and I did it for several years, actually. Well, there you go. At that time, I think there was another lady doing it out around the room somewhere, but it was a bit of a, a novelty to have a female clerk of the course, I suppose. From the saddle. From the saddle. Connected to rural communities and farming families, the team at Hewitt Consulting have a unique understanding and ever-growing portfolio of rural digital and marketing designs. The most reputable marketing and design business in rural Australia. And a few sneaky ones overseas. Logo designs, bull sale catalogues, marketing material, custom trucker caps and merchandise, horse adverts and a whole lot more. Caitlin and Robin understand that each project is as unique as the business it's for. Contact them today. www.hewittconsultingco.com.au Find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the saddle. So, girly, like looking back, did you find that dad treated you the same when it come to showing you things and teaching you things and responsibilities as opposed to your brothers? No, I think we all just tacked along and the, and the brothers bossed me. He might have been boss of the brothers, but the brothers were the boss of me sort of thing. And, of course, I didn't learn to drive because with so many boys, and most days you didn't, you only had one car virtually. So... To push them out of the driver's seat would have been amazing. So I didn't actually get the driver's license till I was about 18 because I didn't need it. There's always somebody going somewhere. But, I mean, there was a bargain, you know, you come fencing today and we'll take you to the dancer tonight. <laughs> you know, that kind of caper. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> they had it worked out. Oh, yes, yes. But I did never learn to drive a tractor. I think the boy, my brothers did get me to drive it one day, but I made such a mess of it probably on purpose, but I never got asked again, so I was quite happy about that. And what about now? No, I don't drive a tractor. <laughs> I bought these people a buggy to drive around in. They said, you can drive it. I said, not likely. I'll drive the old Toyota, thank you. If it's got four legs, I can handle it, but if it's got four wheels, no. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So, girly, have you had a lot of people work for you over the years? I've had a couple of girls that, um, you know, I had one girl here for about three years. She was really good. She came after she left school to do work experience, more or less, and she stayed for a fair while. But mostly it was just family. And then when the nephews and nieces started to grow up a bit, you used to con them and give them a bit of education, free education too, mostly. 
because, I mean, when we were growing up, you didn't get paid to go mustering or anything like that. It was what you did, but you had a few head of cattle to keep you interested and a few horses to ride. And the old guy next door used to break in a lot of horses. And uh, I used to spend a lot of time down there with him and leading them out and all the rest of it. And then some of the men would give them uh, the first few rides. And if they were quiet enough, well, I'd take them over then and ride them and um, work them until they went to their various owners because um, that was just part of it. I used to think the horses were great, but I'd, I realised that horses don't pay the bills. Horses don't pay the bills. It's the cattle that pay the bills, so I got more interested in the cattle. <laughs> so, girly, what type of cattle have you always had? Well, my father always had Angus, black cattle, and that was back in the time when you wouldn't bother taking a black beast to a cattle sale because nobody would buy them. They didn't want them. They were certainly not the fashion. You know, you had to have a Hereford or a Shorthorn or mainly Herefords, of course, in those days. But um, after I took over, I started branching out, and I think I've been through most of the breeds in that time. I got my first limousine in 1991. I've always leaned towards the limousines for my carcass competitions. I've got about four different breeds of bulls at the moment in the eight that I have. And... Um, I just crisscross them backwards and forwards and keep the softness with the Angus Murray Grey. I've got a South Devon at the moment. But basically, I like the limousine base for carcass comps. Why is that? Well, they seem to have what it takes, you know, for the measurements and all the rest of it. But I have a policy that if my horse has to go out, out of a walk to get them, that you don't keep them. Okay. Anything makes my horse go out of a walk doesn't stay. But I haven't ridden much in the last two years because I had a bad bust at the beginning of last year and I broke a lot of bones and I was laid up for a while. So I mostly ride the Toyota these days. You've traded in the horse for the horsepower? Well, I've still got the horse. As a matter of fact, I just said to the farrier a while ago, I said, Joey's a lovely boy and he loves me, but even if I never ride him again, I said, he's my pet. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So, girly, who helps you these days? Well, my nephew and his wife, they're here. And um, while they do take jobs off property as well, they've got cattle and they've invested a lot in the place. So, yes, they're the mainstays at the moment. You mentioned earlier that he will probably be the next generation that works the place that you're on. How does that make you feel knowing that, you know, there's a, there's an end in sight basically and, and one day it won't be you running it? Yes. Well, basically I leave a lot of the decisions to him. I, I pick out the cattle that I want for carcass comps and that sort of thing. Matter of fact, yesterday we were out pushing a prolapse back. He pushed a prolapse back into a cow and he went out this morning and we did it. So we don't know how that one's going to turn out, but. He's certainly learning a lot, but he's he's happy to do it. Well, he seems to be. And, um, you know, I'm I'm just hoping that they'll continue on and just look after things as was sort of thing. He's invested in machinery and stuff for fencing and, and all that, whereas I used to get fencing contractors in and all that sort of thing. So I can leave a lot of that heavy lifting now. I don't have to worry about the heavy lifting. So I just go along and draft the cattle and... Yeah, so hopefully it'll just keep going for a bit longer yet and I'll keep doing what I like doing. So do you find that the new ways that your nephew's trying to introduce is frightening to you or 
or are you comfortable with it? No, well, I, I can play with an iPad, but I can't work a computer. And I still keep my cattle books by hand. I still keep my cash book by hand. At the end of every three months, I total up the columns, take a photocopy and send it to the accountant because I loved bookkeeping when I was at boarding school and I got very, very high marks in my bookkeeping all the time. So figures are pretty good. I can sort of handle figures a bit. And I worked for cattle sales. There were four different sale yards around here in the in the 60s and 70s and I penciled for most of the four of them for the agents sort of thing. And um, that was a pretty good grounding. And then I'd help out in the office to balance the sale. And then I did a bit of relief work in the council out at Gundawindi a couple of times. I went back out there because I knew the dryer clerk and I helped them out. And, and just working around for a few weeks here and there, it gives you a better understanding of what goes on. Absolutely. So, Gurley, do you feel like the industry is moving so fast that, you know, the old ways are getting left behind a bit? Well, they are in a lot of ways, but a lot of the um, advances are beneficial because there's so much that you can do now. I mean, the days of dipping, 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 these days you can do it by injection or pour on, but we, we keep plunge dip simply because it, every now and again it's handy. But you can get longer between musters with injection and that sort of thing. And that would have to be a plus, except that you're not handling the cattle the same as mm. you used to. But we still give our weaners a lot of uh, education in the yard before you turn them out and you sort out the, the rat bags go to the sale pretty smartly because everybody gets rat bags. That's right. And, you know, they can just pop up anywhere. But you don't keep them because they upset all the others. But most of all, they upset me. And um, you've got to have quiet cattle, definitely. So, Gurley, a lot of work over the years, you know, well, all your work has been done on horseback and, and not motorbikes and things like that. And like you said, the way we handle cattle now is different because of basically procedures now that are different. Do you think that that is changing the industry as a whole? Well, I think it is. It's only in the last three years that there's been a quad bike here because I think that they're pretty dangerous machines. And then when they wanted to get uh, a buggy, they said that would be safer. And I thought, well, yeah, okay, well, I will get a buggy because it would be handy and they're easier on fuel and all the rest of it. And the trouble is too many people are using bikes and you'll go to a bull sale and buy a bull and bring him home and all of a sudden he sees somebody on a horse and he nearly turns inside out, you know, which... Uh, once he gets used to it, it's all right. <laughs> yeah. But but I guess that's something that it's no big drama if you know it's going to happen. So you sort of introduce him slowly. Yeah, you're aware of it now. Yeah. As, as a whole, the industry is aware that not many animals are handled on horseback these days. That is correct, yes. I know for like us at home, my husband and his family, um, my husband's a third generation on the property and they struggle to get employees and, and keep long-term employees just because the money's not in the agricultural industry. So a lot of the paddocks have to be mustered via helicopter just because the manpower is scarce. Yes. And that changes everything. Well, that is a big change. I know one place that they muster with drones and they don't do too much yard work. And 
one of the neighbours said, well, he's a pretty good bloke, but if his cattle get into your place, it's hopeless because you can't do a thing with them. Mm. But uh, helicopters, ours is very hilly here, but some of the neighbours do use helicopters. And I've always been a bit wary because I thought, oh, my God, the cattle will be rat bags. But I watched them and do a first muster down here in the hills. And this, you know, chopper pilot is a really, really, really good operator. And I went down to see the cattle as they came along the fence into the yard. Well, those old Brahmin cows were just walking along as if, you know, there was a bloke poking along on a horse behind them. And I, I was pretty impressed. But I don't think we really need to do it because, you know, the country doesn't lend itself to it. And we don't have the numbers anyway, you know, because we're only running about 500 head here at the moment. It used to be about 800. With the creeping lantana and all the rest of it, it's better to, you know, look after lesser because if you run into a dry time, you don't get burnt so badly. So how low did your numbers get when you destocked in the in the bad droughts? Well, we've usually got about 120 breeders with about 30 heifers coming on, but it's the dry cattle that we've run out of numbers that we destocked. It wasn't cows and calves, it was the older steers and that. Over the years, uh, if we run out of water, I tend to put my bullocks into a feedlot and give them 60 days and kill them as grass-fed sort of thing. And that's a handy tool because when we wean, I I fill the grain bin so that they learn to eat grain so that I know that if I get stuck down the track, I can put them in a feedlot and I know they'll go onto the grain. And I've done that a few times over the years, just bundle them all up and send them off to the feedlot and drop the numbers down quick that way. Um, back in the, it would have been in the early 80s when it was really dry. I just forget the actual year without looking it up. But we sent cattle to a Dolby sale. It was drought. And we sent them down there because they were predominantly Angus in those days. And we were very unlucky. Well, first of all, we had to dip them at least three times. And they had to go through the clearing dip. And when they got to Dolby, they struck a, an 8,000-head sale. And so they wouldn't drink the water, of course, when they got there. So 8,000 head, they didn't get to sell them till about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, so you can imagine what they looked like. Mm-hmm. I was heartbroken because I thought, oh, my God, what are we doing to them? Anyway, I was sitting there licking my wounds a bit, and I heard these guys talking, and, and they were talking about the cattle, and I said something to them, and they said, oh, I said, yeah, they were our cattle. I said, they've been. They said, well, don't bother bringing any more. If you've got any more, they said, just ring us up. Don't bring them to the sale. <laughs> well, that worked out. <laughs> well, it did, but I didn't have any more to sell. <laughs> I'd already done it. <laughs> so that didn't work. I thought, well, I don't think that was a really good answer because feedlots weren't around then either. But um, doing these competitions and everything, I found out that the feedlot is a pretty handy tool and you can destock pretty quick if you run out of water or you run out of feed. So, Girlie, what are your thoughts on, on the animal activists and the battles the industry is facing with animal welfare, animal health, you know, all that that is basically in the forefront of the media these days? Well, I think the media should wake up to itself a bit. And um, there's a lot of people that should not have cattle. They should be banned from having cattle. I've got some of them between here and town that I have to go past all the time and the cattle are so neglected and run out and not looked after. You know, they die like flies in the drought 
and all that sort of thing. And it just absolutely shatters me to think that you can't do a thing about it. And I think if you don't want to look after an animal, don't have it. And I think they should be able to move in on people who neglect their cattle to the extent that they just completely neglected. I think they should wake up to themselves a bit. And I was actually saw a thing on Facebook last night about brumbies down in the snowies. I have some friends down there that do those trail rides and the way they're treating those brumbies just makes me savage because they say, oh, they're, they're ruining the high country down there. The horses aren't ruining it. It's the wild pigs and the deer more than the horses. But they go in and just wholesale shoot the horses from helicopters, but they don't worry about the pigs and the deer. You know, where, where's their common sense? That's the thing. There's no common sense. There is no common sense. So basically what you're saying is sometimes what the media is reporting and the whole story is left out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, this guy came on last night and there's a mob of brumbies trapped between a river and a, and a swamp sort of thing and they're just dying. And he said, well, where's the RSPCA? He said, they should be here doing something. They're all talk, but they don't do anything, any action, even if they're dropping feed to these horses or go in and, and if they're going to destroy them, do it properly. Humanely, yeah. Because, you know, he said there's plenty of sky above here that they could bring helicopters in and drop feed for them, but it's not only the horses that are dying, it's the roos and the emus. Everything that's trapped in that little area is dying. And there's a lot of them, according to the photos, but they're not doing a thing about it. And then, of course, we, we've got, rescue cats. All my cats and dogs have ever been rescues because people dump them on the road. And that really gets me hot under the collar. How can they go out there and just dump animals on the road? That really gets me rolled up, I can tell you. <laughs> I guess, Gurley, as a industry, the people that breed cattle and horses are generally caring people and you know we often have potty calves that we have to feed several times a day and and oh, yeah. sometimes you know, the media is can be seen to be reporting misinformation, I guess, and, and painting a picture that we breed to kill, basically. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay, if they're, if they're going to not eat meat, what are they going to do with all these cattle that we've got? Well, that's, yeah, that's that's the whole thing. Like, the, the whole thing is that we shouldn't be breeding them, so to speak. Yeah, well, what are they going to eat? Mm-hmm. See, the mindset is that you get your food from the supermarket. Yes. <laughs> you know, we'll yeah. just go down to the supermarket yeah. and get the food. Yeah, your but milk comes from a carton. Yeah. yeah. You know, where it comes from. Over the years, we've had a lot of overseas visitors from time to time here. And we had a uni student here one time. He was a Canadian and he was about 18, 20 or something like that. And when he first came here, he was drinking milk like it was going out of fashion because we were milking a cow in those days. He went over and saw mum milk a cow. No, no, he wasn't going to drink milk again. No, that's not where it comes from. That's not where it comes from. <laughs> no, it comes out of a bottle. <laughs> and we'd had kids come here that you had to put milk in the bottle and say they'd come from the shop. Oh, okay. And it's, I don't know how you're going to educate those people in, in the cities. I don't know either. But, girlie, what is one piece of advice you'd offer to the next female who's trying to do it alone like you are? Oh, well, go for it. You know, it's not, well, it's not that hard. It's only common sense, I think. You, you can get around most of the problems. And if you can't, there's always somebody to ask. 
and there's always somebody that will will give you a hand. You know, I think girls have got it so much better these days because they're much more accepted, especially round up in those stations up north. They're nearly all Jillaroos on those properties. Mm. But, I mean, you'd probably know that from trying to get employees too. Well, we find that a lot of the younger generation don't want to work, I guess, in central locations. They more want to go north on the big properties and, and experience the whole Jillaroo or Jackaroo lifestyle. Yeah, well, there is that, yes. Mm. Um, because whereabouts are you? You're We're in Theodore. Theodore's a lovely little town. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and that um, shop that you have in Theodore is absolutely awesome. Oh, Homes Enterprises, yes. Yes. Oh, yes. That is fantastic. <laughs> Years ago when I was in the Young Country Party, we travelled around because we were all in this group. That was when Mara first, um, when they were first clearing out around Mara, I've got photos of the big machines that they used to crush the Bigelow. And that's before Mara was even a town. So we knew quite a few people out around Theodore and we did that area a fair bit. But I hadn't gone back to look. A few years ago, I went with a cousin to a school reunion and um, we had a weekend there and it was really terrific. <laughs> Thoroughly enjoyed it because I know a lot of people from around there, of course, through the carcass competition. Yeah, yes. And I mean, the carcass comp has given me so many, I've, I've got to know so many wonderful people. It's um, really mind-boggling and I've been involved with that one, of course, since it started in '88. And um, I've got pretty much into the gimpy one now for the last few years. And yeah, that's that's another set of wonderful people, which is really great. And the exhibition has led steers. So, you know, I've got a lot to keep going for. You do. You absolutely do. And I sincerely hope that you keep going for a very long time. Well, so long as I can keep the marbles. <laughs> it's, it's been one terrific ride. And when I had the bus the last year and... I said to them when I came round, I said, well, if I hadn't come round, I guess you could say that I wouldn't have any regrets for what I've done over the years, you know. I've, I've had a pretty good run, put it that way. And having been in Motto all my life, I think it's a, it's a terrific place and there's just absolutely no place I'd rather be. Well, that's good, girly. I'm so glad that you have shared a little bit of your story. It sounds like there's much more to share. We better not keep you and we do thank you very much for your time today and um, we will, yeah, talk with you very soon. Okay. Thank you, Caitlin. Thanks, girly. Bye. Bye. Thanks to our sponsor, Hewitt Consulting and Communications. <laughs>